Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast exploring how to deal effectively with conflict, actual and potential, good and bad. Engaging guests discuss a range of insights, and I cover tips and topics based on my 35-year fascination with conflict and my experience helping people with it. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. Jack Wofford is my guest today. He is a man of considerable experience and wisdom. We talk about Jack's career to date and essential elements of the work he does today. Jack started as a lawyer, and now, does he assist with negotiations, help with conflicts, disputes, issues, disagreements? Is he a mediator, facilitator, coach, consultant, family enterprise advisor? What's in a name anyway? Coming up, some conversation and insights on the lexicon of conflict. Hello, Jack. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hello, Jane. I'm looking forward to our conversation. There are so many things we could talk about, but we will find a couple that we enjoy and delve into those. Before we do that, I would ask you to tell us a bit about how you've come to do the work you're doing today. I know there is great breadth and depth to your work. Well, thank you. I guess I would say I um, absorb the essence of mediation, which is really what I do, probably when I was five or six years old. And I had a brother nine years older and a sister six years older. And, you know, there were issues, disputes, conflicts, um, fun, all sorts of things in the family. And I did a lot of listening and observing and had affections for everybody, a live-in grandmother who had a hearing problem and her earphone would screech. And anyway, on and on. I think I got used to listening with an open heart and mind to differences. And I went to, after college, went to um, eventually law school and clerked for a federal district judge for two years. And then went into the war against poverty. This was LBJ days. And Mm -hmm. I was in staff assistant in the community action program, setting up the new federal program, which was focused, as we know, on, quote, maximum feasible participation Uh by the poor in designing and implementing their own programs. And I would say that focus on participation by what we would now call stakeholders has just become central to my work. I went on from there, a bunch of things in university, but ended up directing a major transportation controversy in the Boston area, huge expressways and transit extensions planned. And I was the director of a three-year restudy of these Uh, reporting to the governor of the Commonwealth and taking into account environmental, 
quality of life, all kinds of issues and dealing with pros and cons of alternatives, developing options. So developing options has been another key part of my work and doing it in an impartial way because I charted, crafted that director position as being impartial. There were such strong views of opponents to highways, opponents to this, opponents to that. And I felt to have credibility with everybody, um, I would maintain impartiality. And I became the number two lawyer in the U.S. Department of Transportation back in the Jimmy Carter days and came back to Boston to a private law firm for the first time. And I was in the development field, really managing legal work on major development projects, mostly in the Boston area. And my senior partner and mentor, who greeted me in the first week of my return, said, you know, all the consensus building that you've been doing in the public sector is what you need to do in the real estate development work because that's terrific. you need to listen to everybody, take all their <laughs> viewpoints into account and keep their eye on the goal. And he said one of those headline things to me, you can be the glue that will hold the transaction together. What wow. could be better, better marching orders? Incredible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So really? I went from there to a dispute resolution firm where I really found my place not representing any one side or another, but being an impartial and available to deal with conflicts. And I was there for six years. And then I went on my own in 1993 as I was moving into senior more senior years, why I felt my security would really be enhanced and my happiness would be enhanced if I worked only for myself. So I have nobody working for me. I'm just a, a one-man band here. <laughs> totally love what I do. Sorry for that sort of long answer. Ooh, but It's a fabulous answer. Hits a bunch of themes that are appropriate to what we might talk about. Without a doubt, Jack, I'm thinking from a very early age, what you spoke about of listening with an open heart, how essential that is to the work that you do and do well. Along the way, Jack was part of an ensemble when he joined a dispute resolution firm and worked with corporate clients on communications and handling conflicts. Then, for three years, Jack was the facilitator for, as he puts it, 42 people around a square table for the famous Big Dig Project. 42 people representing various interests, the threat of five lawsuits, and a transportation project of tremendous impact for the city of Boston. For that project and others, Jack has stressed the importance of listening with an open heart and mind to differences, developing options, and impartiality, which leads to a question I have for Jack. So I am interested, Jack, in some of these words that have gone by, and one that hasn't, that I know I don't hear you use a lot, but others do use. Talk to us a little bit about impartiality and neutrality. Well, I tend to not use the word neutrality, just because it may sound so, what's the word I want? Vanilla. <laughs> okay. Non-significant. It's like, oh yeah, 
I'll be neutral. That's easy. Just turn it on. I think impartiality conveys the reality of things much more. It says, yes, I have feelings about this, but I'm going to manage them in a way that doesn't let them intrude on what these people in conflict really are concerned about. So to me, impartiality relates more effectively than neutrality to active listening to what's going on. Why do they come to me for help? I mean, that's the first question. What, what can I do to help you? Why have you come here? Right. And then they spill the beans or mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so that's why I, I use that, that word. I think there's a lot of literature on the two words in the mediation uh, lexicon, but I just quickly jump to the one and for years I've kept to that. Well, it makes perfect sense. And I also am interested in another combination of words that come up and people sometimes assign meanings to them that may be accurate and maybe not. What one person says is not necessarily what the other person hears. And those are the words facilitator and mediator. Well, let me, I want to get to that. I want to just say something first about these words, conflict, dispute, issue, disagreement. And it dawned on me when I was being interviewed by a a family, wasn't prepped much by one of the family members who said, hey, we need to talk to you. So I had a resume of dispute resolution experience. The first thing out of the maternal head of the second generation family business that we don't have disputes. We don't have any disputes. We have some issues Uh and some disagreements. I mean, my son wants to spin off a whole section of the company as his own profit center with no connection to the total business. It's going to totally undermine the business. But We'll just need to discuss those issues. So I thought, hmm, very interesting. Yes. Turned out mother and second son screamed at each other in the workplace. Like, (laughs) we don't have conflict. (laughs) So there are just some red flags. And the word conflict, disputes, issues, disagreements, I don't care. I like to start where people are. And Jane, you and I know some of our colleagues make a clear distinction between disputes and conflicts. That mm-hmm. Disputes are surface things, or conflicts are deeper things. I just think that's not helpful to me. I just assume a full spectrum from presenting issue to deeper causes to even deeper emotional realities, and that those tend to be in existence, whether the parties are calling it a conflict or a dispute or an issue or a disagreement. So those are my thoughts on on that. Does that ring a bell with you? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you shared it. I think it's very important. What I'm hearing in large part is whatever we label it, it belongs to, in this instance, a family. And I know a lot of your work is with families. This is theirs and they get to choose what they want to call it. And you can work with them, Jack, regardless of what they want to call it. You can still do good work. Call it whatever you want to call it. Well, I totally agree with that. And in terms of now the word mediation, let me just say that long before I became a mediator, 
I was resistant to labeling people of this or of that. Okay. And resistant to pigeonholes. And maybe it came out of my family background. I don't know what, but I've taken Myers-Briggs a couple of times and I can never remember what I'm a this and I'm a that. It's like, and I changed and the board, I'm borderline on some of them. It's like, okay, so very interesting. But I just resist labeling. So let me tell you a story on this word mediation. I have done a lot of environmental, big environmental disputes, and I've done a lot of family enterprise issues, summer homes, estate squabbles, family businesses, et cetera, probably 25 or 30 family enterprise issues at least, and a whole bunch of major environmental disputes. And so a a close friend and colleague who was head of what we call these days ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, for the Environmental Protection Agency region in the Boston area. Mm -hmm. And she was trying to start mediation of a major controversy with General Electric that had polluted a major river in western Massachusetts and, and was trying to persuade her EPA folks to to uh, go with mediation. And they said, oh, God, no, we're not going to do mediation. Uh, we just get that gives up too much power. We're just seeding, you know, uh-huh. no, no way. Uh-huh. So a day later, she tells this story. It's wonderful. And she says, day later, I came back to them and said, okay, no mediation. But what if we just got somebody who was unbiased and impartial and could help us communicate with each other and uh, help us, you know, maybe think through different options and and leave leave the control of what's going to happen to us. What what would you think about somebody like that? We could talk to confidentially and they could talk to <laughs> and they said, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> uh-huh. So that's mediation. But it was a red flag word and they didn't want to use it. Right. So just as I accept whether the party or parties talk about conflicts or disputes or issues or disagreements, whether they want to engage me as mediator, facilitator, consultant, family enterprise advisor, coach, uh, as long as I have four guiding principles. So I'm going from the label to the functions. Mm -hmm. That is the essence of what I believe is so important. The four basic guiding functions of a mediator is party control over the outcome. This is not arbitration. Exactly. That can be so confusing, I think, to some folks who don't have exposure to this. And when you were describing that situation, I thought, "Mm, are they afraid this is arbitration? They are afraid it was arbitration. That's where you hire a judge who's going to make a binding decision and impose it on you. Completely different. Party control of the outcome, number one. Impartiality by me, number two. Treating all the clients equally, regardless of who's paying the bill or who is a state official or who is this or that. In other words, the mediation process, we can call a metaphor, the mediation table, to me is a very equalizing thing if you are going to treat everybody's perspectives 
with equal respect. Mm -hmm. It goes back to this listening with an open heart. You know, I try to encourage participants to listen to each other in a way they haven't listened before. So equality among the clients is really important. And finally, confidentiality, so that any one of them can say, hey, I want to talk to you privately. And I do that all the time. I find it just essential to how I would work. There are some mediators who never go into what's called caucus to talk privately. They want everything out in the open. And some of them are very effective. But these are the four guiding principles that work for me, and they seem to work for my clients. I love how clear they are and how easy they are to understand. And to my mind, so widely applicable. It doesn't matter what the subject matter is or who these individuals are. These principles can apply no matter what. Well, I think that's the point. Thank you for your uh, active listening. (laughs) (laughs) I also think, Jack, as I'm reflecting back to what you were describing as your early years and as a child and then growing up and the things that seem to feed into, I'll call it, your work today. And listening with an open heart, of course, the participation is so important when people understand that they are going to be listened to with respect. They are going to be able to say their piece, which sometimes they have not been able to do in the past. Oh, absolutely. They generally have, you know, bottled it up or let it fester, churn or all these things, or they've let it blurt out in anger and sometimes violence, um, et cetera, et cetera. So creating a safe environment yes. where people can speak up yes. is so essential. As you're saying, thinking of the uh, the listeners, that if you are there to help the other people listen with respect, which is different from we're going to agree with everything you're saying, still that person has an opportunity to speak and be heard with respect. Oh, absolutely. It's clear that they don't have to agree, but they have to try to understand. Yes. That's the key step. So I wanted to just make a a little bridge from the bridge. Sure. (laughs) Because I I was doing that work for the big Boston Bridge from the dispute resolution firm. I actually moved, my office was moved down to the assistant secretary of transportation. He said, you are you know, I want you to help me with all my internal issues in this huge organization. (laughs) But I would go back to the base and and the bridge thing was wrapping up in a good way. And my senior manager of the Boston office of the dispute resolution firm said, hey, it looks like you, you know, you think you might be doing something we call mediation. Does that make any sense to you? And I said, (laughs) well, I don't know. I've been the facilitator of this. He's, well, uh, wait a minute. He said, you want to learn what real mediation is about? I said, sure. Uh, he said, well, come on with me. We're going to co-mediate three disputes. So we co-mediated an intricate employment dispute, a complex construction dispute, and a really rambling commercial dispute. <laughs> and in the course of it, I heard him say to each of these groups of participants, So let me tell you what mediation is. It is assisted negotiation. Very good. And that's a new idea to many. They think they're there to establish my rights, 
Yes. Determine my rights. I'm going to insist on my rights. No, this is negotiation. And it's to be assisted by this impartial mediator. And so he would say to them and said to me so clearly, there are three roles that a mediator has. Facilitation, the shape of the table, when you're going to meet, uh, managing the communications, the, the meetings, ending it, etc. Second, coaching, privately, mm -hmm. confidentially, diplomatically, as a conversation with people individually. And finally, evaluation. So facilitation, coaching, and evaluation to me are the three essential pieces of the what I bring to mediation. Now, evaluation is can be a controversial phrase, and there are people who say, oh my God, I never, never touch evaluation, because they say this is just going to lure me away from my impartiality. To me, that's that's just nonsense. I can evaluate maintaining my impartiality. And, you know, some of these people who avoid, they say, oh, we'll never do evaluation. They say, oh, well, we can do reality testing. Oh. Here's another <laughs> linguistic thing where yes. words are just absolutely troubling people. Yeah. So these are other big red flag words, negotiation, facilitation, coaching, evaluation, reality testing. We need to look behind all those words to the functions that that we have in mind. Excellent. I couldn't agree more. And thank you for sharing all of that so clearly and love the stories. I've certainly had heard about the big dig forever before I met you and I knew you had a role in it. It sounded wildly complicated. And then what a fabulous result and a very visible one too. We all get to see what's going on in downtown Boston. Well, Jack, this has been great fun. How could people reach you if they wanted to learn more about your work and get in touch? Um, before I do that, let me sure. just say in terms of party control of outcome, I was co-mediating dispute among three sisters over very beautiful Atlantic coast oceanfront third generation inherited property. And we heard the issues about, you know, use and cost arrangements and, and how they would treat guests. And my co-mediator said, well, now we've heard those. I think Jack and I can go away and uh, we'll, we'll draft what we've heard and get it back to you as a draft. And I said, oh, let's hold on a minute. What if you three sisters were willing to do what I'm calling homework and try yourselves to draft a guest policy and a schedule for the summer. Mm -hmm. And we have used that technique with them now for a year where they've been doing their own homework and it is so productive. And, you know, in a way it goes back to maximum feasible participation. Yes. It's just pushing things back to them. And my co-mediator who's not in the family enterprise field as such, but does a lot in that arena, said that she thought that was just an astounding insight to advance their understanding of each other and their yes. ability to work out the details and nuances and, and learn how to communicate with each other. So Fantastic. that's the final story. I'd like to just 
leave you with because oh, yeah. I think it so conveys the importance of pushing back to the parties if you can create the space for them. How people can get in touch with me? Yes. Well, I have an email address. I use my formal name, which is John. So it's John Wofford, all strung together, lowercase, J-O-H-N-W-O-F-F-O-R-D at earthlink.net. If they want to send me an email, they should say follow up to podcast or something, because otherwise I might just delete, delete, delete. (laughs) Okay. And I have a cell phone, 617-803-8663. Uh, I tend to prefer, you know, somebody who sends me an email says, I'd love to talk to you on the phone. Can we set up a time and then we work a time out on the email and then we have a good phone conversation where often, you know, it takes half hour, an hour to hear what's going on. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. as you know, only too well. Yes. And finally, I do, I've bought into a website, mediate.com, which has my own paragraph or so on there. So that's how people can get in touch with me. Terrific. And I will, of course, put that information in the show notes so people can find it there. Thank you again, Jack. It's been great fun talking with you. Well, fun to talk to you, Jane, always. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please tell a friend, share it, leave a rating or review. When you spread the word, more people have a chance to enjoy the show. You can also sign up for new weekly episodes on your favorite app. Whatever setting works best for you, and it's free. You don't need to pay to listen. You can also find the show at CraftingSolutionsToConflict.com. Comments or ideas? Let me know. Until next time, I'm Jane Bettle.